What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Megan Rapino, and I'm Sue Bird. We've decided to turn our crazy IG live show into a podcast for your listening pleasure. Enjoy the show. A Touch More. New episodes of A Touch More drop Tuesday only on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. All right, today's podcast is brought to you by Bet Online, your online wagering solution. We're going to go over the 2015 second round series between the Rockets and the Clippers, Game 6. Really fun game, really fun podcast with Craig Ackerman. Just as a heads up, a very tiny piece of the audio got cut off at the beginning. You're barely, you're not even going to notice it, but I just wanted to point it out just in case you guys do. I hope you guys enjoy. Blue Wire. Russell Westbrook is off to Houston. It's going to be scary. Not for us. <laughs> And Westbrook is on the freeway. Clippers game six, second round of the playoffs from 2015. I'm really excited about this game. So we're in the top three. And in my opinion, any of these games have a strong case for the top spot. Uh, My guest today called this game on radio and considers this the greatest game of the Rockets game of the decade. Craig Ackerman, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. Yourself? I'm doing all right. Um, so we'll get into why this game ranks so highly for me, but why does this game rank so rank so highly for you? Uh, it because it brought back uh, memories um, of the mid 1990s and in, in Clutch City. I mean, the Rockets were down and out. Um, there are three losses in that series. They were crushed, um, and they were basically down and out in that game as well. And and then you know just the, the circumstances uh, surrounding it, uh, the irony of of James Harden not playing uh, down the stretch and guys like Corey Brewer and Josh Smith, not exactly known as, um, you know, uh, three point uh, marksman uh, leading the way. Um, it, it just it felt like it felt like the mid 1990s again when I originally was was a young fan and then an intern with the Rockets. And it was it was just a it was a pretty awesome game that ultimately and, and I don't think it would have that kind of. Uh, feeling now if they had not gone on to win the series but ultimately capping it off with a series win made that game even more special yeah there's a point in this game where I catch you on the broadcast saying this is a clutch city all over again like so by the way this is by far my favorite Craig Ackerman call uh, of the last decade and this game is nuts and your your call adds to it uh, it's well, on thank you. you. It's on YouTube. If anybody wants to go, go check it out, Clutch fans, he posted it with with the game attached, and it's really fun to watch. Um, was it the most fun you ever had calling a game? Uh, was it the most fun I've had? I mean, I, I'll be honest. I always have fun. Uh, I, I enjoy. I mean, I, I I love comebacks. Um, I mean, I've had a lot of fun calling some games against uh, Golden State that the Rockets have won. Of course, uh, not so much on the ones that they've. They've let slip away. Uh, I mean, I I had a great time. It was it was awesome. It, again, it went from a feeling of, uh, you know, sort of um, 
utter disappointment and um, sort of going, okay, well, they've got 12 minutes left in their season and then it's time for the summer um, to, oh my God, what do we just witness? And again, it was the circumstances surrounding it. It was two unlikely heroes um, that did the heavy lifting in that fourth quarter. Um, and I think that's what made it, again, um, special. I mean, I had, again, I have fun doing doing all kinds of games, but that obviously was extremely fun. I don't know if I would call that the most fun I've had, but it was certainly up there. Yeah, I mean, like, this game is just, like, the, the unlikely heroes part of it is what really sticks out to me because out of all people that you would expect to save the Rockets with a three-point barrage, Corey Brewer, Josh Smith, <laughs> And Terrence Jones at, at one point is is not. Terrence what you, had a heck of a game. Yeah, it's not what you would expect. Like that threesome <laughs> is not what you would expect to bail you out in the game six. And and also kind of lost in the shuffle there. Uh, Dwight Howard had a pretty big game uh, yeah. too. Um, uh, but no, it, the the Corey Brewer and Josh Smith factor was what put it over the top. I, I guess particularly Corey Brewer. I mean, they combined for twenty nine fourth quarter points of the what forty the Rockets scored. Uh, in that final 12 minutes. But, you know, I mean, Corey bombing threes and Josh Smith bombing threes. The Rockets hit seven threes uh, in that fourth quarter. I, I, they they had the majority of those, uh, if, if memory serves. Um, but um, and I, I was a huge uh, – I really liked Corey Brewer personally. And so uh, I think, you know, anytime that he had an opportunity to, to go off and contribute, at least from a personal perspective, uh, it felt pretty good. So um, – but, yeah, it was just – uh, and, 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 you know, it was just watching, you know, the Clippers, as I mentioned, in their three wins prior in the first four games of that series, they dominated. I mean, they were easily the better team on the floor. They were lopsided victories. Um, they were the better team, easily the better team in that series. Um, going into game five, let's start with game five before we even get to game six. They were easily the better team in that series going into game five. And James Harden and Dwight Howard pl- both played great in game five, forcing uh, a game six and the Clippers probably just felt, you know what? We just had a bad game. We'll go get them uh, back in our home building where they, where they were really good and they were really good. And then the fourth quarter happened and with the Rockets going off. And then another thing I really me- remember that stood out to me in that game was outside of Chris Paul, there was nobody on the Clippers who wanted anything to do with that final quarter. Once the snowball started, I mean, you could literally see it in their eyes. Chris Paul was the only player who was willing to take a shot uh, when the Rockets were, were, were coming back and then eventually running up the score. Uh, and the irony on that is that Chris Paul was this close to advancing to his first Western Conference Finals of his career and then had that game ripped from him. And then ultimately the Clippers were just uh, mentally shot. They had no chance to win Game 7. They looked exhausted. And, and Chris Paul and Blake, up until the final minutes of that game, were having great games. Chris Paul in this game... 31 points, 11 yeah. assists. Uh, Blake Griffin in that game, 28 points, 8 rebounds, uh, 2 assists, 2 steals. Like he was ha- Both those guys were having great games. Blake Griffin was doing ridiculous 360 layups and stuff. Like He was just having a ball. It really looked like they were headed to the, towards their first Western Conference Finals in franchise history. Um, and I think we should get into some, particu- uh, some context before we get into the particulars. So... By now, ridiculous fourth-quarter comebacks have kind of become commonplace in the NBA because of the variance of three-point shooting. Right. But before 2015, there was a certain threshold you could you could hit and feel confident that the game was over. Usually that was about 20 points, give or take a few points. This game kind of opens the floodgates and ushers in a new era of ridiculous 
playoff comebacks? Um, yeah. Oh, when they were down 19 points late in the third. Um, and and look, like the Rockets, relative to the rest of the league, were still taking a pretty high volume of threes back then. Nowhere near what they're what they're what they're doing now. Um, uh, but it was just it it was sort of just further evidence that um, it, much like the uh, the 50 point quarter uh, that the Rockets had. Uh, at Minnesota in what year was that? 2017? Was that 2018? Uh, Chris Paul's first year, the year they won 65 games. It was just one of those things where when this style of play, when you start taking a ton of threes, when it all comes together at at its peak, this is what you get. You get 40-point quarters. You get 50-point quarters. You get deficits that you can erase instantaneously. On the flip side, you also get leads that can evaporate uh, quickly, and to me, I think that's what personally adds. Uh, I know a lot of people. I think it's probably because they just don't have uh, an understanding of the rationale and math that's behind the modern NBA. But for me, I, that's what I think makes games so exciting. Because if you're down by 15 points, if you're down by 18 points, um, it doesn't necessarily mean you're out of the game. Nor should as a as a fan, you should stop paying attention to the game, and vice versa. Um, you shouldn't feel comfortable with a sizable lead like that until perhaps maybe the two-minute mark uh, to play in the fourth. So um, to me, that's what really makes things exciting. But yeah, I mean, everything came together. And again, it was the unlikely, um, the, uh, the guys that stepped up and got the job done that, that, that just made it that much more special. Yeah. And again, since this happened, we've seen a bunch across the NBA. Like Clay Thompson is kind of the poster child of this, right? Clay Thompson has been behind so many third quarter comebacks since 2015 like this is the first real game that ushers in like th- that tells that this is possible right that poor you remember Vinny Johnson right the microwave right yeah um, right and that was back in the 80s right and and things have changed so much now so I wonder what the modern term now uh, people what use uh, turbo nuclear I, I don't know what the modern phrase is but you're right I mean guys guys like get hot I mean super hot in a hurry and all it takes is a handful of possessions to either walk away and hide or rally or blow a deficit. And and again, to me personally, that level of variance and uncertainty and volatility really adds to the excitement of the modern game. No, I enjoy it. Like I I do. I really do. And I think in a seven game series, most of the time, the better team is still going to win. Like this is, this is one of those rare occasions where I don't think the better team won. Correct. But, But it was still a hell of a series, and I, I think this is more of an, an anomaly, which you're going to get in the future. But it was still fun. It was still fun uh, to yeah, watch. Yeah, in the NBA, the, the teams with the, 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 the most elite talent typically always win uh, because there's so few of those guys. We're talking about the elite of the elite in the league. There's so few of them. There's, there's so few true difference makers in the NBA that if you have one, at least you're in the game, as in – a chance to be successful, not just talking about an individual game, but and then you, if you have multiple elite, elite talents, then you have a real opportunity to either make a deep playoff run and or uh, win a championship. And um, and so, in, in particular, in so in the long run, when teams have talent, always ultimately wins out over the long term. But in the short term, you can't have strange, you know, situations like this. I mean, go back to. Uh, when when uh, when Golden State won what seventy three games and they they couldn't cap it off, uh, they were easily the better team. They were easily the team with the most talent. Um, but occasionally anomalies do happen. But typically, most of the time in the NBA, the teams with the most elite talent 
always win out. But it's fun when you do have some of these anomalies, especially if you're considered the underdog, because it feel, really feels good when that does happen. Yeah, 100%. And it will be interesting, actually, to see how much variance affects the, this upcoming playoffs. It, like, it, if with four or five months off, like I, want, I wonder how many upsets we'll get with the, the amount of variance that's involved in the NBA today combined with teams that aren't in rhythm. Like, that's going to be interesting to see what kind of combination we get. Um, so Harden goes to the bench with around two minutes remaining in the third quarter, and the score is 72-89. This is unofficially where Houston's run begins. Before we get into the play breakdowns, what did you think of Kevin McHale's decision to not only bench James Harden, but keep him on the bench for the rest of the game? Because at the time, it was considered really ballsy. Oh uh, well, first of all, he was not having a particularly good game. He was he had a triple double in Game Five, which kept the Rockets' season alive, which led to Game Six in Los Angeles. And he was not having a particularly good game. And mind you, up until the last year or so, uh, most of Harden's worst games of his career came against the Clippers in Los Angeles for for whatever reason, and he was not having a good game. I think he uh, – let me take a quick gander at the uh, the box score. I think he had all of his free throws, but he did not he did not shoot it well at all uh, in game six. And so he was you know, he was struggling with his with his efficiency. Um, and, you know, again, you're at the end of the third quarter, so uh, I can't remember if that was the typical time where Kevin uh, gave James uh, a rest anyway or if he just sat him because he was just having a – a, a, a poor game, but then the fourth quarter starts and you're thinking you're looking over and you're like, well, the season is on the line and your best player is still sitting on the bench. That's when I start thinking like, huh, this is interesting. Um, you know, he, he's, he's, you know, with potentially only 12 minutes left of your season, he's going to start it with his best player on the bench. That, and that's where I was like, huh, that's a little weird. That's a little strange. And then, you know, the, the run picks up and I, you know, you I keep glancing down at the bench. Is he going to put James in? Is he going to put James in? And he, he just rode the hot hand, uh, the hot hands. Uh, so you got to give credit to Kevin McHale. He ultimately made the right decision. So James Harden was five for 20 in this game. So you're right. He was not shooting well. Um, but here's what I'll say. Like Harden was struggling and it was probably the right short-term play, especially the stakes of that game. Uh, the fact that the Rockets were on the verge of elimination. And this was the first time that they'd ever gotten this close to Western conference finals in 20 years. Like, yeah, it was probably the right short-term play, but ultimately I think it was still short-sighted because not only is keeping your star player bench during the closing moments, a dangerous career decision, but it's short-sighted if you intend to coach that team long-term. Let me explain, because James Harden's 25 years old at the time. You need him to get adjusted to playing in these tight games. Like He needs these reps. If you plan on being his coach long-term, keeping him out there in crunch time may cost you this game, but win you several others in the future because then he becomes adjusted. Now, it's easier to say that than do it, right? It's harder to actually do it. So... Uh, I, I'm not going to hold it against him. Now, let me be clear. I, I think it was totally fine for him to originally bench James Harden in that particular moment because he wasn't playing well. I don't think I, w- I would have felt comfortable keeping him on the bench for the entirety of the fourth quarter. I think I would have brought him back in. Well, that's why I kept looking down and I, and I was wondering, is he going to put him in? Is he going to put him in? But uh, like sometimes coaches have to make really tough decisions. And he made a decision. And then I think what helped him maintain that 
um, decision to keep him where he was is that the guys, I got to remember, I mean, obviously Josh Smith and Corey Brewer um, aren't James Harden. They're nowhere near his talent level. Um, But those guys are, as they say, on scholarship too. And um, they're worthy of being in the NBA for a reason. Um, And at any given moment, pretty much any player at the NBA, when you're talking about the 400 or so best players on the planet can get the job done. And I think what, what continued to justify his decision to keep him on the bench was that those guys and that group were playing so well together. And, um, and again, I, sometimes coaches have to make tough decisions. Who knows if the Rockets end up coming back and then ultimately blowing the lead and James is still sitting on the bench. Hindsight is always 2020. Maybe that does affect Kevin's status uh, immediately uh, after that particular series. But, um, you know, um, these coaches and players get criticized um, for making wrong decisions and doing um, bad things and get uh, rewarded and praised for doing the right thing, depending upon the results. And the results here was that Kevin McHale made the right decision uh, to play his hot hands and to leave his best player uh, on the bench as gutsy and as ballsy, as you mentioned, uh, as it was, it turned out to be the right call. And the Rockets went on to win the series. So I think Kevin, uh, again, hindsight is, is twenty twenty, but I, I think Kevin, uh, even to this day, deserves praise for making the absolute right call in that situation. He won him that game. He, you know, he won his team that game. There's no way they win that series without James Harden, but he made the right decision to win them that particular game. I say a quick break to talk about our friends at Bet Online. There is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partner, Bet Online. NASCAR is back, and Bet Online has hundreds of other games, events, and sports to get in on. You can still bet on simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC events 24-7, or you can participate in a $10,000 Madden Bracket Challenge, a March Madness-style NFL simulation tournament you can enter for free. And coming on next Sunday, BetOnline has ex-Chicago Bulls Ron Harper, Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, and Craig Hodges joining them to discuss the Michael Jordan documentary and what they're calling the final dance. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, all caps, to receive your new welcome bonus and check out all the action. BetOnline, your online wagering solution. They say a healthy gut means a healthy you. Favor apple cider vinegar shots bottles this feeling into the convenience of a two-ounce shot. Better digestion, stronger immune system, and the lowering of blood sugar levels are just some of the benefits to shooting a daily favor shot. Their proprietary blends are raw and organic and mixed with other functional ingredients to create a better tasting experience. First-time shooters can go to drinkafavor.com. That's drinkafavor.com. Now back to the show. Right, your last point is particularly salient. When you look at James Harden in Game 7 of that series, like he was really, really good. He brought them home, and he does not get enough credit for that. He gets, he gets I think, un, like he, he gets a, way too much criticism for this game and not enough praise for the Game 7 he put up or the Game 5, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, he's ha- He had really good games in this series. Um, but here's my thing. Like I, I, I totally understand the notion of keep running with the hot hand or, or keep staying with the guys that brought you there, right? That's a very old school basketball term and it applies to the situation. But, hey, Kevin McHale's an old school basketball guy. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I get that. 
it's not a it's not a very modern NBA decision, is what I'll say. It, it, it's not something it you rarely see happens. I, yeah. I bet you if that if that game was replayed again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I bet you that James I, and I, 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 I have, it's not like I've talked to Kevin about it, but I but I, and maybe he's commented on this since. But my guess is that internally, going through his brain as he's thinking through things. You know, he's probably thinking, I need to put him back in. I need to put it back in. I'm going to put him back in after the, you know, after the after the first timeout. I'm going to put him back in after the second timeout of the fourth quarter. Um, I'm sure he was running through this internally in his own brain as he was trying to think through what would be best for his his team. Um, but again, the guys were so this guys were they were playing so well, and you, you just could feel the Clippers collapsing. I don't know if it came across on TV, but sitting there courtside, you could see the fear in the Clippers eyes outside of Chris Paul. Chris Paul was the only guy who was not willing to fold uh, in in that situation, but you could see it on the faces of DeAndre Jordan and Blake Griffin and whoever the heck else they had out there uh, at the time in the fourth quarter, their best players outside of Chris Paul. uh, They, that Rockets run especially that the run that was initiated by who was initiated by that uh, as to use a modern phrase, those guys were shook uh, and uh, you could see that in their eyes. And I think that's something that um, Kevin was probably seeing as well. And as he was running through and, and my guess would be his assistants were probably like, Hey, you're going to put James in. You're going to put James in. You're going to put James in. I mean, um, and he, again, um, when, when you win and you make the right decisions, you get praise. And then when you lose, when you make poor decisions, you get criticized. And that's why those guys get paid a lot of money. Right. And the, the obvious choice to when to put him in is, pro- is probably the 423 mark of the fourth quarter when it's a tie game, when it becomes a tie game and, uh, the, the, the Rockets, uh, the, the Clippers call a timeout. Like it, it's so obvious to go ahead and put, and put your best players in at that point. And I'm sure he, that's where he felt the most pressure and thought about it, but he ultimately chose to ride with his guys and it was the right decision, uh, in that, in that moment. Um, so uh, the, a bunch of things had to go right for this, to, for this run to happen, for this comeback to happen. And, and I'm just going to go through some of them here. So the one twenty second mark of the third quarter, Terrence Jones is left wide open for three and wisely chooses to drive and draw the foul hits both free throws, which he's a 50 to 60% free throw shooter at this time. Pretty unlikely. Uh, to 43 mark of the third quarter, Terrence Jones hits a wide open three again, 30% three-point shooter at this time. Pretty unlikely. 10.30 mark of the fourth quarter. Corey Brewer gets away with the travel and gets the layup. Again, if that tra- if they call that travel, who knows if the run continues. Because one call can break that kind of a run up. Um, now it's 82-92. Trevor Ariza runs off the screen, hits a catch-and-shoot three. 7.55 mark of the fourth quarter. DeAndre Jordan saves the ball under his own basket which is just like coaches hammer that home all the time. Do not save the ball under your own basket. J- and, he, and he did it in that moment. Jason Terry catches it, hits the wide open three. Uh, it's single digits now, 88-97. Corey Brewer and one layup to get it to single digits again. This is where the game just gets absolutely nuts. So Josh Smith brings the ball up after Jason Terry forces the steal. He feels the defense out realizes that both DeAndre and Blake intend to leave him open on the perimeter, and he hits the three. 
and they're down six with seven minutes remaining. At this point, what is your level of interest, confidence in that game? Like, are, do, you, do you sense that something's going wrong? Going wrong for or? the Clippers. For the Clippers. Oh, oh, absolutely. I, you could you could see it on their faces. They, I mean, you could you could literally see the fear in their eyes. They were tightening up as it was happening. Um, and uh, you know, the, the total run was like what twenty three to two or something, yeah, crazy uh, like that. But th- that was just one of those. It was just one of those snowball effects where the the energy and the juice the Rockets were playing with. Um, I know people have sort of um, ruled out the uh, the whole. Uh, I, I, I love the movie The Big Short, and they talk about the the, the fallacy of the, uh, the the hot hand fallacy or whatever it was. But the Rockets had the hot hand in that game, and it was multiple guys who had it, and it just that that built on their side and snowballed in the opposite direction for 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 the Clippers. That's the the the, the three main things, as I mentioned, that stood out to me in that game were okay, uh, looking down about James, Josh Smith, and Corey Brewer leading the way, and the fact that you could see. The Clippers collapsing. You could see that. You could see their brains uh, and emotions on their faces. They wanted nothing to do with that final quarter, other than to get the heck out of there. With the one lone exception of Chris Paul, they, they weren't shooting. They were passing up open shots. Um, and as they were tightening up, uh, the Rockets were playing loose. They had nothing. Like they had, they had nothing to lose at that point. Um, you know, Corey Brewer was typically, uh, you know. I love the, you know, I'm just happy to be here kind of guy anyway. And they were playing loose and free and the Clippers as each possession went through that final quarter, were getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Um, and, uh, it was just, it was, it was, it was pretty cool to watch. I mean, in person, because you could see all that sort of unfolding right in front of you. Yeah. And, and some of these decisions, by the way, are the right basket, technically the right basketball decision, like leaving Josh Smith open for a three is technically the technically the Correct. right basketball decision, right? Uh, you, you, you just don't expect him to hit any of those. And as he starts hitting more and more, the Clippers start to step up. But and this, this is where I start to disagree with the hot hand fallacy. Like, like I, I'm all analytics. I, I'm, I'm down with it. I, I, I agree with it. I use it all the time. This is where I'm like, no, I, the hot hand exists. Because <laughs> Smith is hitting these threes with, a, with hands in his faces. Like, DeAndre Jordan is all up in his grill by the end of the game. And he's still hitting these shots. Like it's just ridiculous. Like he def- internally, he definitely feels that something's going on. And I think Josh Smith did a, p- a podcast recently where he talked about how he felt it going on. He was telling Dwight to after every rebound, just give me the ball, and stay the hell out of the way, and, I, and I'll, I'll figure this out. I'll take this home. Uh, you so- play. I'm a, you play pickup ball, right? I mean, I'm sure yeah. you've. We've all had our moments, right? Where all of a sudden you can't miss. I yeah, mean, it's 100 you know. percent true. Yeah, happens all I mean, the time. They, they, yeah, there is a little, there is a, there is a feeling there. And again, at this level, you know, even though Josh Smith and Corey Brewer aren't in James Harden's stratosphere in terms of talent, I mean, look, Josh Smith had a heck of a career. Um, they're certainly capable of of going off, and they they, they know when they're feeling good. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was, it was a, like once, <laughs> it was it. The, the odds of that being repeated are probably at the same odds of the Rockets missing 27 consecutive threes again. <laughs> Basically non-existent, right? Both were like once-in-a-lifetime chance, right? right? The circumstances that, that, that ultimately led to, 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 to both polar opposites. Yeah, and by the way, 
you're going back to the body language thing again. So, yeah, I, I do agree that a lot of what the Clippers are doing wrong defensively is their body language. They, their shoulders are slumped. Oh. They, they just look dazed. Uh, but a lot of it is just their gas. They they look completely tired in these in the like. There's there's a point in this game, a uh, five twenty nine mark of the fourth quarter. I wrote down in my notes a very tired Blake Griffin steps up on Josh Smith, who, who just hits two threes in a row, and now bringing the ball up. Dwight sets like a half screen to Blake's right, so he's not really setting a screen. He's just like standing there and he's in screen position. Blake gets confused because he's tired as hell. And Josh Smith go drives left for the easy layup. Like I, I think at this point you just forget which way guys naturally go. Like I think I think in that moment Blake, I, I watching the game, it looked like Blake forgot that Josh Smith was left-handed. Like it li- literally looked like that watching the play. Like he he defended him as if he was a right-handed player. Josh Smith drove to his left, got the easy layup. Like it, these guys look completely tired. But when you get when pressure when pressure gets ratcheted up, yeah, typically, um, no matter how many times as an individual in whatever situation pressurized situation you're in, sometimes that results in people not thinking clearly. Mm-hmm. No, you're right, and, and and again, like this Clippers team, by the way, like a big part of the reason they're so tired, it's so shallow. Like the the amount of players that Doc Rivers plays this game, it's like it's like seven by then by that point. Like he's getting Austin Rivers and Jamal Crawford off the bench, and that's it. Like all, like I think Kendrick Perkins was a part of this team. Like the like Big Baby Davis. I mean, um, like this team was really, really shallow and struggling to find depth. And you can tell by the way they're defending. Like they, th- this is this is the point where it all falls down on them. Like it hits them like a ton of bricks. The like it, they, it looks like they internally realize, oh my god, my body can't move as as quickly as it did at the third at the. It's top of the third quarter. I, I still tend to I, I I tend to believe their mistakes and were a result of just as you I think you used the phrase days the standing eight count that was initially given to them they were just oh, they were yeah and and more more than actual it all it all kind of is is one thing anyway but more than actual just you know physical. Um, physical exhaustion i just i think it was just the moment that stunned them that resulted in everything that snowballed from from that point forward no because I, and, 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 and the yeah. same can be said on the other on the other side when when people when 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 people have feelings of euphoria and confidence because things uh, are repeatedly going your way oftentimes when your, your adrenaline kicks in and whatever physical fatigue you have you don't necessarily feel it until after the moment or situation is over anyway. So I, I just think it was more of the moment and what was happening and how it was happening that led to the Clippers being stunned and ultimately ineffective. No, I, 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 if I were to wait it, I would say like 70, 30, like 70%, there were a ton, 30% exhaustion. Like if, if that's, that's the percent I would have put on it, but, and, and this is where you can really see like just how much everybody's just shocked at what the hell is going on. Like, so the state, the staple set, Josh Smith hits this, blocks this shot and hits another step back three. And the staple center is just 
pin drop silence. The camera is is panning to celebrities in the in the arena with hands on their faces. They're just confused. They don't know what's going on. You look at the Clippers bench. They don't know what's going on. Obviously, the players on the court don't know what's going on. Doc Rivers is yelling. He's he, he's he's panicking. He's in euphoria. He doesn't know. He doesn't really know what to do. It looks like he's kind of throwing his hands up. He doesn't know what the hell to do. Um, it's just a moment of confusion. Do you remember the atmosphere in that building at that point? Uh, well, I just remember I was going crazy, and there are actually a couple of guys who've worked on the uh, the uh, the official game crew for the Clippers for years that I've I've gotten to know pretty well. And uh, you know, every time we see each other, we we you know we kind of talk trash uh, back and forth. So when we were going to commercial breaks, I was staring. He was only a couple of seats away from me, and we were trying to kind of talking trash uh, back and forth. So that that's what I just remember. Just being in the moment, uh, I you know I I don't necessarily remember what, uh, and when I when I'm when I'm calling um, uh, a game, I don't ne- I don't know if I necessarily notice, um, uh, especially on the road, um, uh, uh, the crowd. You notice the crowd when things are going great for the home team, like like every time the people in in, in Oakland got up and the Warriors were rolling. Uh, that kind of hurt um, because you, you kind of get familiar with that. But when things uh, are going bad for the home team, uh, I don't necessarily pick up on the quiet level of of the fans. I'm just personally enjoying it uh, so much. So I, I I was having I personally was 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 having a great moment. Um, like I said, during commercial breaks, uh, kind of talking trash back and forth with with some of the guys uh, that were working there for for the Clippers on the on the scorer's table and uh, again just generally having a, a ton of fun well you were one of like 15 people in that building having a great moment because the rest of that building is just i've never seen an atmosphere like that it's just pin drop silence you have to go back and watch the clips for this by the way it's well just, if you watch the clips yeah. occasionally when the camera pans yeah you can like see me stand up and doing like fist pumps <laughs> like yeah. i kind of I, I really kind of get into it I, going back i don't know when it was maybe it was my first one of the one of the season one of the playoff series against the Blazers uh, in Portland. Um, we, we radio sits off the well for the Clippers now. Radio is off the floor too. Basically, it's everywhere. But at this time, radio for that particular series was still on the floor in L.A. But Portland, uh, the radio was off the floor, um, not too far off. It was actually not a little bad spot. But you have fans who sit literally right above you. And uh, the Rockets were doing well, and I was doing my typical fist pumps and all that stuff. I had people throw stuff at me, so um, uh, you know. So, so it ha- I tend to get into it a little bit. But if you s- every once in a while, if, if you get the right camera pan on this Clippers game, you can see me standing up, you know, giving you know air fist pumps and stuff like that. So, yeah. By the way, you're allowed to do that. You're the home play-by-play guy. You you, <laughs> you can get into it. Um, no cheering on press row, though. That's what I was originally told. No, it's fine. I screw that. Uh, <laughs> But, um, yeah, it, it, this game is completely nuts. Uh, and you're completely right about Dwight's rim protection as defense. Like, he is just suffocating guys at the rim. Like, Blake just can't get anything to go at, at around the rim. And it's, it's all Dwight. It's all He is the unsung hero of this run. The Rockets don't get to the Western Conference Finals this year without Dwight. Uh, uh, Dwight gets a lot of grief uh, around these parts uh, and around the league. Uh, for that matter, but uh, I, I've always said this: Dwight's. I I like Dwight Howard a lot. Um, I, I really enjoyed his time on the team. Um, the two of the three in two of the three seasons that he was around, 
uh, overall, he was the best Rockets playoff performer. Um, and I don't think people really give him enough credit uh, for that. Things got, you know, it, it turned turned uh, for the worst uh, at the end there. Um, and, um, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure what I never personally witnessed, um, you know, any acrimony between Dwight and James. Obviously, they're two very different personalities. Um, but I always enjoyed Dwight. Um, and uh, I, I thought Dwight, um, again, in two of those three seasons, uh, really played well for the Rockets when he was when he was healthy. And uh, I know this is a little bit of a sidebar here, but uh, and I know the Lakers are a rival. But I, on a personal level, um, I, I'm glad to see that, that Dwight had a had sort of a, a renaissance of his career uh, a little bit this season uh, with the Lakers, because I think he's a Hall of Fame player. And again, when he was here with the Rockets, uh, would I have liked to have seen him um, become, um, you know, uh, more accepting of uh, his role primarily as a pick and roll player instead of posting up on the time? Do I think that would have changed um, the course of his career with the Rockets? Absolutely. I don't know why he was so unwilling to sort of accept that, which in part, in large part, made him one of the three best players in his prime when he was in Orlando because he was such a dominating pick-and-roll threat. Why that wasn't something that he could not grasp and and ultimately turned into his bread and butter, I don't know. Um, but, uh, I again, I, I enjoyed his time, and, and Dwight was, was terrific um, in, in the playoffs for the Rockets. So, uh, yeah, he had a great game. Yeah, I mean, uh, and it's funny, you mentioned how you – you would have liked Dwight's role to be like, just play defense, run pick and roll. That's it. And, and you'll be an awesome player and you'll be beloved by the fans here. And it's fine. This, this game is kind of Dwight doing that. Like he is really staying the hell out of the way. He's not asking for post touches. He's, he's playing really good rim protection at the, at the, at the basket. He is, um, he is running pick and roll with guys like Jason Terry and Josh Smith, which is, you know, uh, unlike him, but that, that's, he's just, he's staying out of the way. He's, he's playing within his role and he's like, this is, I think if if you were to point to the most impactful game Dwight's ever had, I, this is probably it for me. Uh, he's just a monster in this game. He's just a beast. No, I honestly, I really haven't thought. Uh, I'll take your word for it. I haven't thought. I, I haven't thought about what it was his most impactful game um, with the Rockets. But again, he was he was the Rockets overall. He was the Rockets' best playoff performer in two of the three seasons that he was here. So I think he does deserve deserve credit uh, for that. Yeah. Um. All right, so I, th- I think we've thoroughly covered this game enough. Awesome game. Everybody should go back and rewatch the highlights of it. It's really entertaining. Rewatch the rewatch the highlights with Craig Ackerman's call over it because it's really, really fun and really entertaining. Craig gets really into it. Uh, if you can't see him going crazy, you'll hear him going crazy in this game. Um, uh, by the way, Craig, have you watched The Last Dance? Have you completed it? Yes, uh-huh. So I want to I, I want to get this off my chest real quick. So the Tim Grover thing with the pizza conspiracy. So it, it's drive, it's driving me crazy because the, just the all the logical stuff doesn't add up here. So five guys go to hot, to MJ's hotel room to deliver this pizza. Fine. How is that out of the ordinary? If you found out you were delivering a pizza to Michael Jordan, would you not tell your friends and would you not all go at once to go deliver this pizza? I don't think that's suspicious at all. Uh, well, it's it's a little odd, but but the thing is, first of all, how did they know it was? How do you know it was Michael Jordan? Did they say you know? I mean, uh, yeah, this pizza's from. I mean, did they did they say who it was? I mean, usually, uh, especially um, the stars, they all travel with hotel aliases. 
So I, I, my, my first thing on that was, well, how did these guys even know it was Michael Jordan ordering the pizza? So, um, I guess the they, idea is they narrowed it down or something, but even, I mean, even so, you it's, narrowed it's it down. Hard. You have team when, when teams travel, you have, you know, you have 50 hotel rooms. Uh, I mean, it could have been any one of the, the bulls unless Grover specifically mentioned his name and they put two and two together since he was his trainer. Um, but no, normally guys travel with, with, uh, in, in many respects, some, some fairly, um, uh, creative uh, aliases. I won't go into any of them, but uh, they can tend to be a little bit uh, uh, bizarre, and I guess we'll just say creative. Uh, so I'm shocked. I, I, I don't know how. The, how would they know he, that was Michael Jordan? That, that, that's what I don't understand. And I guess maybe if you did kind of catch wind that it was Michael Jordan, that um, you know that you would roll five deep into a hotel. But here's another thing: typically, when you order pizza in a hotel, in order to go up to the room. Everybody has to check in at the front desk, right? You can't right. just say, right? And so uh, how did the front desk allow five different people to come in to deliver one pizza? Don't you think from a security standpoint, especially knowing that the bulls were in that hotel, that you would let something like that fly? So I, this, it's a strange story. I, I don't know if all of it adds up. Yeah, and Tim Grover is just like I don't. I don't think he actually believes this. I think he sold himself this over time, and and he's just so into it in the documentary. He's just like Michael, don't eat that pizza. I I have a got I got a bad feeling about this. I got a bad feeling about this. He is just sold on this. So you can tell, even if he didn't believe it at first, he's definitely thought he he's definitely sold himself this over time. But yeah, it, it, there's just so many things about this story that don't add up, and, and I feel really bad for this random Pizza Hut in Utah that's just getting defamed right now. Uh, they, they're getting a bunch of bad press. I'm sure if I go look up their Google reviews, like the internet's crazy. The internet's probably already found that Pizza Hut, rated it down like like three stars. I think the guy what? who delivered it, or who made the pizza, has already spoken publicly several times about. Oh, it. Oh, really? He's he's yeah. come out. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it said that there's absolutely no way was that pizza compromised. Yeah, I mean, uh, by the way, the, this idea that a Pizza Hut in Utah would have five guys working there, but like, like, when I when I go to Pizza Hut, like, and I don't go there that often, like, but when you do go to Pizza, Hut, there's like three or four guys working. Like, there's not, you never find five guys behind the counter. Like, they, yeah, there's just something about that that does. Uh, maybe that when he delivered it, he called up all of his boys and <laughs> and, and, and said, "Hey, meet me." You know, I, I, who knows? To me. It doesn't necessarily um, uh, add up, and I and and I guess the 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 aura of the the flu game uh, sounds a whole heck of a lot better than um, food poisoning. Well, I'm glad they actually came out and said it was food poisoning because for a while it was conjecture, and now they confirmed it, and now we can stop calling it the flu game. Uh, well, although I suspect people will still call it the flu game because it just sounds better. The food poisoning game doesn't have that same <laughs> ring, right? Well, nobody wants the flu, but people, you definitely don't want food poisoning. Oh, no, no, you don't, you don't <laughs> want food poisoning. Um, but yeah, the doc was entertaining. This game was entertaining. Everybody go watch this. Uh, the final two games of Rockets Rewind are really fun. This game has a strong case for being number one. I, I totally understand if you this is your number one. Um, yeah, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And Craig, where can we follow your work? Uh, just you can follow me on Twitter. Uh at CA underscore Rockets, and then, you know, uh, radio and TV. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, I appreciate the time as always. Thank you so much.